in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Destin Melbarnes, Nathan Lutz, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome, all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Dustin Melbardis, and today I'm joined by uh, coming to us from our nation's capital, uh, Ryan Hopps. Say hi to everybody. Hi, everybody. Coming to us from Boston, Massachusetts, uh, please introduce yourself, Linton Fellows. Hey, how's it going, Dustin? How? Thanks for having me. So Linton is my best buddy from college, and we became friends over uh, many a burrito and comic book discussions. So we actually met Dustin in a, uh, uh, it wasn't a comic book, well, it was a comic book writing class, but it was a, a, it was basically doing scholarship about comic books. It wasn't, we weren't writing our own comics, which we have since tried to do and, and had less success with, I think, than we did in the class. But um, I think we kind of recognized each other as kindred spirits who shared a love of Mexican food and sequential storytelling. I think we started what a going combo. To- what a combo to come, right? to come in here with Mexican food and storytelling. And- Linton, what's the last movie that you saw? It doesn't have to be in theaters, but the last movie you saw, aside from what we're covering tonight. Yeah, well, the last movie that I saw is the one we're covering tonight. So I'll go. I'll go with the last one I saw in theaters, which was uh, Robert Eggers' The Northman, a Viking revenge tale. If you get a chance to see it in theaters, I recommend it. But it is streaming now on premium VOD. And oh man, just if there if there is one style, if there's one subgenre that really keeps me coming back, it's the it's the revenge tale. And this is this is a very strong one. Uh, uh, how how were the um, the trapeziuses in that movie? The trapezi. There were delts, there were trapezii, there were, oh, I'm like, popping, popping left and right. Is it the most shoulderful movie of 2022? So far, yes. Absolutely, without without a doubt. Seems like it's got just a lot of shoulder energy happening. It does, and all of those shoulders are squarely focused on vengeance and that's that's really what <laughs> what i love you know that that uh, i keep watching interviews with eggers where he talks about how and i've seen other directors do this where they talk about i wanted to make a revenge movie because it's such a easy motive to get to, to get an audience <laughs> on board with you know they they it just immediately uh, brings an audience in and it it is so intoxicating and so and so compelling to watch a revenge movie yet i i, I myself I've never once gone on a bloody quest for revenge. And I think that's the experience of most of the viewers that still plug into these movies. So it, it fascinates me. The the what what drives us to to vengeance is it's is, brave to admit that you wanted to do something easy. Yeah. <laughs> right? Absolutely. I think Robert Eggers obviously I think this is actually uh autocorrelated with it being a shoulder movie. But I think Robert Eggers is there. Is there a director who's given us more uh, solid axe work in movies of late? True, he loves an axe, and loves an you, axe. Will, you will not be disappointed. There, there is some solid axe work to be had uh, in The Northman. When has he not featured an axe in his films? 
Yeah, I mean, he's only got three so far, but each I think I think we got it. We get a little bit in each one. <laughs> well, well, there Ryan, are some what's other the last weapons? movie that you saw. <laughs> so uh, I saw that Netflix now has the 1998 Martin Campbell, Antonio Banderas, Anthony Hopkins Mask of Zorro. Mask and I of just, Zorro. I just hit play, and I was just delighted as I was. It's such a it's such a fun dumb movie. I love it to death. Well, I did watch some swashbuckling scenes from The Mask of Zorro like three weeks ago, and occasionally I'll be you know scrolling through YouTube and I'll find a clip about a movie that like oh you know what why watch this 20 minute clip somebody does a deep dive on some theory that they believe about a movie uh and so i one of these clips was uh about like the the true meaning behind the shining i'm like i don't care about what this youtuber has to say but i will sit down and watch the shining uh so i did <laughs> that's kind of that's kind of the only reason i can tolerate the like honest trailers and the the everything wrong withs because it's like well i actually think you know Artistic merit aside, like Spider-Man Far From Home is a fun movie. It's a fun movie to watch, but it's also like two and a half hours. And so like if everything wrong with is going to show me all my favorite bits, even if he's snarkily commenting on them, but it only takes 25 minutes, like that's a good thing to have on in the background. Ryan, what's the movie we're covering tonight? The seminal, the classic, the dare I say unimpeachable Dog Day Afternoon from 1975. You'd be correct in saying unimpeachable. I don't think it can be impeached. Well, tonight, Dog Day Afternoon from 1975, starring Al Pacino, John Cazale, James Broderick, and Charles Durning, the late Charles Durning. Uh, it, the budget was somewhere between $3.5 and $3.8 million, but ended up grossing over $45 million. It uh, placed fourth in the box office that year. Now, ahead of that uh, was Shampoo, and right behind it was Return of the Pink Panther. The number one movie that year, Jaws. And hey, man, we, if we just keep plugging, uh, make sure to uh, check out the, the Jaws episode uh, of our podcast from, I think, two years ago. Now, IMDb gives this a rating of 8.0. Rotten Tomatoes, pretty high. The critics meter is 96%. The audience score is 90%. Um, and while this was nominated for a whole bunch of awards, uh, the one that it took home was the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay. Uh, honor goes to Frank Pearson there. But it was nominated for Best Picture, which is it's, I'm, there'll, there'll be stuff to say about that later. And people will know where I'm going if they listen to my um, previous appearance uh, with the conversation. But it, Excellent. It, it is interesting that Best Screenplay is the one that gets the award, that actually gets the award. Because a lot of this movie is done with dialogue improvised by the actors. <laughs> and that, that, that is such a... It, it's such a, a Beautiful example of the Oscars just kind of giving the awards that they like. Right. <laughs> to who Let's they put want a pin in that. I, I want to talk about our dialogue. And, uh, you know, I, also I a, screen, a screenplay that was based off of a magazine article. <laughs> also that. Not to not to, not to not not to to discount what Frank Pearson did. I mean, no. the structure, the structure is, of this movie is entirely him. And uh, and I mean, from all reports it was a legendary script that brought all all these people to the table but it's it's interesting that that's the the award that they chose to give this particular movie uh well uh, i i do want to i do want to get into that but i think maybe we should just go ahead and take the time to uh maybe take a quick break here so we are going to take a quick ad break uh, talk about one of our sister podcasts, one of our podcast friends, and we're going to come back. Ryan is going to give us a plot summary, and then I think it's important to talk about all of these things, not just in passing. Let's just dive in. Uh, so we'll see you on the other side of the break. 
Welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast. I'm Bill. And I'm Jason. And this is the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. So whether you're a brain, a jock, a valley girl, or a Jedi, we've got some 80s classics for you. Do these movies stand the test of time? Are we discovering something new? Is there an 80s movie we're finally watching for the first time? Join us each week as we dive into the cinematic nostalgia that inspired and influenced a generation. From the hits to the cult classics, we'll discuss our earliest memories, favorite scenes, fun facts, and our not-so-favorite movie moments, too. It's the All 80s Movies Podcast, now available on all major streaming platforms. Please subscribe and happy listening. All right, and we are back talking about 1975's Dog Day Afternoon. If you haven't seen this movie, this is your last chance. Go and watch this movie because Ryan is about to spoil it with his plot summary. Take it away, Ryan. Spoil it, but it's also based on real events. So I'm a firm believer in that you cannot spoil reality. <laughs> it just, it already happened. <laughs> sure thing. Yeah, yeah, I, I understand. <laughs> I, I think one of my first, one of my first uh, recordings on this show was Titanic. It's like, well, you kind of know what's going to happen. But yeah. Uh, no, don't tell me. Ahead. I haven't watched it yet. <laughs> Listen, Linton, there's a perfect storm. <laughs> that movie is uh, is in my uh, Mount Rushmore of worst based off a true story movies, but we'll get into that a different time. Uh, Dog Day Afternoon. On a steamy summer New York City day, three men enter Chase Manhattan Bank branch in Brooklyn, New York. Two of them, Sonny and Sal, Al Pacino and John Cazale, respectively, go through with an attempted armed robbery, only to find that the bank has much less money available than they'd hoped and as their plans unravel, what was supposed to be a quick job descends into a tense hostage situation. The police, the media, and the public descend on the scene where Sonny, a disenfranchised Vietnam War vet, realizes the leverage he has with the hostages and the adoration of a growing crowd. As the day slowly unfolds, Sonny and Sal begin to form bonds with the bank manager and tellers, sometimes in defiance of the police force's attempts, quote unquote, to help defuse or at times escalate the situation. Eventually, Sonny's motivations for the robbery become clear. While he has a wife and children, the wife he has brought to the crime scene is a man named Leon, who in reality is a trans woman hoping for a sex change operation, who married Sonny in a ceremony officiated by a sense-defrocked priest. The money from the robbery was going to help Leon pay for his gender-affirming surgery, but the chances of getting away with the crime become increasingly bleak. Sonny realizes their best bet is to use the hostages to escape the country, maybe to Algeria, but Sal suggests going to Wyoming instead and admits he's never been on a plane and is kind of scared of it. <laughs> After securing a car for their getaway to the airport, the duo, surrounded by their hostages, make their escape. By this point, everyone in the movie is very sweaty. It's hot. It's tense. It's New York City, baby. On the tarmac, the FBI turns on Sonny and Sal, shooting Sal in the head with a hidden revolver and arresting Sonny. Amazingly, this movie is based on a real-life robbery from August 1972, as covered in the Life magazine article by P.F. Kluge and Thomas Moore called, appropriately enough, The Boys in the Bank. Great summary. Great summary. Thank you. Uh, I, I I want to start with this. Guys... During our quick little break, you guys <laughs> were talking about how you really felt about this movie. So what I'm, I think, going to do is just kind of turn it over. Uh, why don't you repeat what you said during the break when we were talking about getting excited for this movie? So real quick, before we do that, I got to tell you guys, I, I went and found the article, The Boys in the Bank. You found it? It's, not, it's a little hard to tra track down. It was hard to track down. <laughs> it, took, it took me minutes of Googling, which is much less time <laughs> than I usually spend Googling something. 
Um, I'm going to put a link to the front, the first page of that article in the chat for you guys to pull up. And if, if you want to tell me that Al Pacino was not the perfect casting. Wow. First of all, in the, the third paragraph, it says the second robber, John Wurtajik, who is the uh, character Sonny is based off of a dark, thin fellow with the broken faced good looks of an Al Pacino or a Dustin Hoffman. Yep. Who I'm named after, by the way. They cast this really? movie in the I, in the magazine article. That's Nailed insane. It. That's insane. Got it in one. Which explains why they went back to Al Pacino like three times, offering him the part and him turning it down. But they're like, you, we need you. Obviously, it's there. It's right there. It's about as perfect as it can get. If I can add to the perfection even more, the actual guy, John uh, Watchwitz, did... when they went to do this robbery, they actually stopped to go to a movie before the robbery to get hyped up for, uh, for the day. Do you know what that movie was? It was the Godfather, right? It was the Godfather. They went and watched the Godfather to go get hyped up for the robbery. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. They handed the bank teller a note. The note said, uh, this is an offer you can't refuse. (laughs) (laughs) But also the, the, the robbery happened in 1972 and this movie came out in 1975. So it came out almost immediately after the actual event turnaround. And so obviously the, the, um, Sal. And so the, 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 the two real guys, where John watched was that it's I, I I apologize for my Polish pronunciations. Yeah, um, I don't I don't have it. <laughs> but the the other guy was Salvatore Naturale, so like it really wasn't Sal. So the Sunny character is a little more fictionalized than the Sal character who didn't didn't survive the events of the day that we'll we'll get into. Um, but John was still alive and has you know commented on uh, the film at when it came out. So well, Sa- Sal's actual name is used. And yeah. because he's the only one that had passed away, everybody else's names are changed. But the character it makes it sound a little more passive than I think it <laughs> as we'll get into. True, true. But the the character of Sal Naturale is so different from the the person of Sal Naturale because of the the person Sal Naturale was an eighteen year old kid right. who only got cast because Al Pacino uh, only got cast with John uh, John Cazal. Because Pacino begged Lumet and eventually convinced him that he was the right guy for the part. I mean, John Cazale, as I, I is also in the conversation, and uh, Dustin. I don't know if you knew this, but um, John Cazale was in five feature films over the course of seven years. Incredibly short career. Every single one of those films was nominated for Best Picture. Guys, hmm. so it must be some type of uh, lucky rabbit's foot. Well, yes. until he died of cancer at a very young age. Lung cancer, which ironically is a plot point for his character in this movie. But the thing about John Casale is that he is not 18 years old. (laughs) He is a 39, I believe, 39 year old man at this point. (laughs) I I love the character of Sal in this movie. It's amazing. It's incredible. Um, I mean, actually, I kind of have a hard time. I kind of love every character in this movie. Like even some of the cops, I, I find charming in their own weird. I guess the main cop Moretti. Moretti's the, spectacular. Well, yeah, uh, amazing, incredible, spectacular. Just some of the adjectives that you were using uh, when I think one of you said something as if like this might be my favorite movie ever. It's it's a perfect movie. And it's a perfect it's, movie. It's arguably. I think there's a good argument for it being the greatest movie ever. Was it, the limo driver really a cop? 
Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> he, he's wearing a he's wearing a, a suit and tie in the in the next shot with him in it. He's he's definitely a cop. Fair enough. Sorry, I, I cut you off. Continue. It's just a it's a it's almost a magic trick of a movie. Like you say, this is coming out only three years after the actual event. It all just comes together in in this in this way where you get this perfect cast together, mainly made up of Pacino and his friends from off-Broadway play play acting. And you bring them all together with the, the visionary director, Sidney Lumet, who has such a way of enabling people to do what they do best, who just brings out the best in his, in his actors, in his crew, in his... Uh, editing team, every, everyone is just at the top of their game and they're all having so much fun. <laughs> and it, it, it's a joyful movie and a stressful movie all at the same time. And it captures that multitude of, of human existence that existed on, that actually existed on this one day, hot day in, uh, in, in Brooklyn. August of 1972. Yeah, I know. And I know I've said this I know I've said this to Linton and I know I've said this on the show before, but it bears repeating the seventies is the sweatiest decade for, for film, right? Oh, there's, yeah. not a, there's not a sweatier decade out there. It's the, it's the naturalism of new Hollywood. You know, they got to gotta capture, capture each, uh, each drop. But the, I, I it, this is, this is actually something though, specifically to Lumet, right? Because uh, I, I listened to your 12 angry men podcast and uh, you were calling out the sweat in that movie as well, right? Sweaty movie. It's a very sweaty movie. Lumet does all his own sweat. He is, he is the sweat guy on set. And that is because he has forged his own technique using a mixture of glycerin and water that he feels gets it just right and enables him to maintain continuity between scenes. And he forged that technique on 12 angry men and it's ev- really evident here in if Dog it Day. works it works yeah. sweat right? on set. <laughs> <laughs> sweat on set that's the promise with sydney lumet <laughs> <laughs> oh nice you, wow you plussed it you plussed it that was great so yeah uh, as far as um the what you know a favorite movie one of the greatest movies a perfect movie um you know had you seen had you seen it before dustin well uh i had never seen it before and I saw it twice in the last three days to prepare for this movie. Does it surprise you that it might not be on everyone's list of the top 10, top 20, top 30 movies? Is there something that you two are picking up that the general public seemingly wasn't? I think this is, I think Dog Day Afternoon is generally regarded as, as one of the great American films. Okay, that's one thing. But to say it's the perfect movie, I mean, to, to the the accolades y'all are putting on. I mean, is find find, I find the say. flaw. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like it's, it's, it may not be your favorite movie, but like it's yeah, it, well, you, you can't argue with the execution of it. Whether it's your favorite, mileage may vary. You know, taste artists uh, artists subjective to a certain degree, and that's that's fine. But this is a perfect movie, and whether it it. I'm not surprised. I'm never surprised to see a list that doesn't have something that I think is amazing on it. You know, I'm not, uh, I'm no, I'm no arbiter of taste. Uh, but I just think that there's so much joy and 
empathy in this movie. Mm, that's a it, yeah, that's an interesting point. That's an interesting. Well, and point. and Linton, you were the one that recommended that you you gave us the list for us to choose from to to choose this movie. Um, and I, I think there was, I'm not going to say gushing here, but there was a lot that you wanted to say. What, what do you tell a friend? What do you tell your buddy that's like, hey, dog day afternoon's perfect and here's why? Like, what's the one big thing? Let me say one thing before Linton answers because I'm, I'm curious. But I think this movie also, for a movie from 1975, the degree to which it comments on things that are still relevant today and basically sticks the landing throughout uh, in terms of... of race sexuality gender class um all of it like it, you know the relationship with the police like it it's just firing on all cylinders start to finish yeah actually and that was exactly where i was gonna go i i imagine you guys have a movie called the retro movie podcast you've probably encountered friends uh who have told you that they don't like to watch older movies you know they they, they watch movies you know from a certain you know at a Everyone has their their marker. They go back to 2000. They go back to 90, but they don't like to go further back because uh, they think it doesn't hold up. And Dog Day Afternoon is the movie I tell them to watch. I say, if you think older movies don't hold up, watch Dog Day Afternoon because that movie could have been made yesterday. And it the between the the film technique, between the social and political commentary, between the ability to maintain tension throughout it's 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 flawless you know when you i think out of that answer the the thing that stood out as like maybe holds up the the most or over time is um we are and i don't know maybe it's midway through i don't know when exactly it happens um as far as time wise but as the movie's going on we, we start with Robbery goes awry very quickly. Extremely they're quickly. surrounded. There's extremely quickly. They're surrounded. Well, within, within the first moments, they lose a third of their crew. Because the guy no longer wants to rob a bank. <laughs> just kind of walks away. Nope. I don't want to do this. Uh, and he wants sorry, to take the leave. car, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, how am I supposed to get home? Take the subway. Um, so uh, this is an instance of like, all right, so things are falling apart. and But it's also an instance of uh, our dialogue, which I think like, like how, how good the, the speaking between these sort of premises characters are uh where they're, they're bickering to one another there is no um like real mastermind kind of uh like portrayal it's like oh we're just kind of flying by the seat of our pants now like Im immediately things have gone off the rails and the characters i mean obviously they're based on real people but the characters are are so lived in even within the first 10 minutes of the movie you're just like oh these are like these are I don't know what their agenda is, but like everyone in this film has an agenda and and has a backstory. It has a reason why they're in this room in this moment at this time doing what they're doing. So can I can I actually talk a little bit about how Lumet uh, went about creating that pro creating that process or. Please do. Please. So the, what I was saying earlier about the screenplay, the screenplay is, you know, uh, suppose it, it's a it's a legendary screenplay. It's it brought everyone into this movie and made them very passionate about it. Lumet likes to work with re rehearsals and they did three weeks of rehearsal on this movie. And what he did was he, he, he actually had everybody use their actual names. He said in the rehearsal stage, we're going to have you all use your actual names. And I think that, that that'll, that'll help get you lived in these characters. Cause especially like the bank staff and 
the 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 manager and uh, all those people. He that those are you know they're they're actual bank tellers that were paid likeness rights, but he didn't have them use their 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 stories. He had them each come to the 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 table as themselves. He wanted them to be themselves, and so when he had said they so that they would have that more solid character behind it and that they had a firm grasp on. And one of the actors came to him and said, well, if we're using our own names, can we use our own words? You know, can we improvise dialogue? And he, he thought about it and he said, you know what, let's, let's try it out. And what, what he did is he brought Frank Pearson into that rehearsal space to essentially record the dialogue that people pushed around the table and pushed around the scenes and recreate the script <laughs> based on those improvisations. And so what you do get is this very naturalistic dialogue. This is, this is not how, when, when Penelope Allen is talking, uh, she, so she's the actress who plays Sylvia, uh, the, the head manager or the head bank teller. She, when she's talking, she is bringing herself to that character in a way that you just don't see in, in other movies. And as an audience, we're rewarded by this process. Exactly. And it's, yeah. it's, it's lightning in a bottle, really. And so it, it, it's, it all creates this very lived-in environment and a very naturalistic environment, which was, I mean, that, that was the goal of New Hollywood, right? This is the culmination of that in a lot of ways. Well, if I can say, when you said naturalistic, uh, later on, I, I, I had written down when we when we get to our superlatives, I was going to mention how true to life it, it all seemed, how very real the the, Big the speaking to one another was. And a lot of that's the sweat, and and a lot mm. of that is the sweat from our man, the sweat man. But uh, I, is it maybe the most natural seeming dialogue of these workers who are supposed to have worked together for a while? We get a little bit of like, oh. You know, M Maria takes too long in the bathroom. It's like, Maria. Like, it's Maria. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> She's uh, oh. always doing this. <laughs> uh, yeah, my our manager has diabetes, um, and our 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 security guard has asthma. Like these little these small little things that might be throwaway in maybe another screenplay. Went to a uh, it really to a does training. make he doesn't even have think. a gun. <laughs> oh, he went to guard school. <laughs> I don't know what they teach him. Um, <laughs> teach him how to put the flag up and take yeah, a gun and fold it at the end up. of the day. Pays right, about a hundred a week. <laughs> It does yeah, kind of seem as if like uh, you just kind of took a cross section of uh, the of their normal day. It feels real as if let's bring some actors into a real bank. Well, I, mean, I mean, one of the best I think one of the best things about this movie is how quickly Sonny, but not Sal, is able to connect with everyone in the bank. And part of that, you know, they 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 I don't know uh, how true to life it was that Sonny like knows a little bit more about the inner workings of a bank and knows how to not get duped by the marked bills and the alarms that are pressure sensors where the, the bills are kept in the drawer and all other stuff. Right. But like he very quickly gets, it's not, you know, I've seen this movie referred to as like, um, an example of, you know, cinematic Stockholm syndrome. And I actually reject that read of this film entirely. Cause I don't think, I don't think there's any Stockholm syndrome at all. I think everyone working in that bank knows that Sonny has a point and is kind of on board. Yeah. That comes through in the t in the TV interview, right? Comes through in the TV interview. I think the moment where it coalesces the most perfectly for me is it is it who's the head teller? What's her name? Uh, S Sylvia Penelope Allen. 
Yes, Sylvia Penelbion, when they're outside the bank together and the cops yeah. try to like give her a chance to be like, hey, like you're you're outside, like you don't have to go back in. And she's like, Yeah, I do. My girls are all in there. And like her her leadership in that moment of crisis, I think is like I mean, it's a, it's a it's such a hero power play. I really love her in that moment with the way she's like, no, no, no. Like, I know I could walk away, but I got a team to take care of. And yeah. like, so I'm going back inside. And it's so it's so hardcore. I love it. It's- I think that's something to laud about this movie um, is if you were to look at Sylvia and you were to look at Mulvaney, um, that they handled themselves. If you had to uh, like have a training video about like how to handle yourself in a crisis wouldn't you wouldn't you put Sylvia and Mulvaney he's like you guys did your job really well oh absolutely. But they did their job in that they they also like the second there was a gun in the room and the guy clearly knew how to prevent them from getting the word out and setting off any alarms they were just kind of like okay well like the money doesn't matter yeah like all that matters is keeping our people alive and, and when, so like I love the fact that they drop any pretense that bank robberies matter like there's this whole, I've seen this thing in like Superman comics where like Superman should focus on so many other things before stopping a bank robbery. Cause as long as like nobody's being harmed, like other than the money being taken, like the bank has insurance. It's fine. <laughs> like just right. let them, let them go and get, get diffuse the situation. Don't escalate it by trying to sneak in the back. Cause the SWAT team, they love climbing on ropes. <laughs> they love climbing the ropes. That's a different department. We don't have communications up. We don't have communications. Poor Moretti. I mean, if you thought if you thought uh, uh, Jim Gordon was the most put upon cop <laughs> in cinema, nah, yeah. Moretti. No contest with Eugene Moretti. Yeah, Ch- Charles Durning playing uh, Moretti here. Is it the perfect amount of control, but also lack of control of of the the hectic chaos outside? Um, I, I wanted to ask, and I'll just ask it now, is like there's we were just describing a bunch of stuff that happens inside the bank, like the relationships and the communication inside the bank. When we get to like the police controlled area, it seems to like we lose a lot of control. That's I a, love that. That's feeling. a great observation. Yes. I had I hadn't actually thought about it in those terms, but yeah, the the Moretti trying to keep his people in line he has a much harder time with that than Sonny has inside the bank. And you're, you're absolutely right. And I hadn't put that together and that's a really cool juxtaposition. It's a lovely point. Is it's, it's yeah, it's, it's wild out there. He's yelling, screaming, cussing. Um, some, of my, some of my favorite scenes are just when like the cops are setting up in the barbershop across the street. And like, there's a guy whose job it is to just like carry in a, a pallet full of sandwiches. And I'm just <laughs> like, I, I love that because like at one point the bank robbers are eating pizza, they're drinking tab and Dr. Pepper some, and the cops are just angrily eating bland sandwiches. And I'm just like, that's so funny. There's some, <laughs> there's some really strong eating acting from Durning in this movie. He's got the, the sandwich. He has himself that he's a delicious on. looking Turkey club. Yeah. I think, while I think it's while um, Maria's boyfriend comes in and tackles uh, <laughs> tackles Sonny, I don't think Dur- I about called him Durney. I don't think Moretti says a single thing. I think he just watches on and eats his sandwich. Well, because he, he, he's willing to let Sonny get roughed up a little bit as long as it doesn't actually lead to one of the hostages getting hurt. Yeah, I think, but no, I think the sandwich. I think the sandwich is is later, right? Because then he. There's after, multiple sandwiches after they <laughs> and, and, a pasta, sandwich and a pasta dish, but then, <laughs> but then they pull him off and he's and Moretti's he's right in there like okay okay I don't know that we don't know that guy we that's, that one's not on us we we can't control that guy you got his you got his girlfriend in there we don't have communication back there. Yeah. There's the amazing scene that the um 
the guard, the unarmed uh, guard, is uh, he's the only black employee of the bank. They, it's it's mostly white people. They've got one Latino woman, or, or Spanish, as they're called in this movie. <laughs> Spanish, yeah. Um, and everyone else is white except for the bank guard. And um, uh, Sonny and Sal are both coded as Italian-American, uh, which, you know, I think even in the 70s, they were still a little like, eh, I don't know. And, oh. um, so, Sonny, Sonny's Polish. Uh, but he's... In the real life version, Sonny. But is, even even in this, his last name is like uh, War- Warchick. Is it? Yeah, yeah, War- Warchick. Well, according according to his bio on Wikipedia, his dad was Polish, but his mom was Italian American. Oh, okay, there you go. Um, so so t- and and the fact that like in the newspaper, in the Life magazine article, he's described as dark. Right, that feels yes. like coded language for Italian American. And like when they release the first hostage, they release because he's got health issues is the guard and the cops almost kill yeah. him. And I was like, man, <laughs> that is like, I don't, I, it, he's a hostage. What are you doing? It's, and the way that the scene gets, the way that that whole sequence gets so close to boiling over, like this whole movie is, you know, the pot starting to bubble and you're just waiting for it to boil and you're waiting for it to boil, not just um, in a controlled way, but you're w- waiting for it to boil and go out of, uh, out of control and start burning people because it's so, the tension is just on a razor's edge the whole time. It's so perfectly tense and yet yeah. so funny too, yeah. which is such an insane balancing act to make, but something you can only find in real life. It's that, it's again, it comes back to that naturalism. And it's, it's, it's Sonny, it's Al Pacino as Sonny, like, I love the, I love, again, to use the word juxtaposition again, I love the juxtaposition between Sal, like, never even loosening his tie. Yes. <laughs> and Sonny just getting increasingly unraveled and disheveled throughout the entire film <laughs> to the point where, like, he just got nothing left. Like, he's completely, it's, he's, he's like, and it's, it's also sort of, um, I, I think it's like a metaphor for how much he is exposing himself to both the cops and the crowd, but he's exposing himself because he's learning throughout the course of this film that the more he can get the crowd to eat out of the palm of his hand as a performer, the cops have less and less power over the situation. Well, I, I want to talk about the crowd. I want to talk about, I, I did want to just really quickly say that like when I was, because this was my introduction to the movie it was just three days ago. And, uh, Linton, you, you mentioned the, the comedy, like the humor seems real. Um, and the movie starts off, funnier than i thought it would be i think it's it's you have sunny who can't reach the cameras to spray paint them out black <laughs> well it, i mean even before that him getting his gun out of the long flower yes, get, get, and... yes getting the gun out of the long flower it's thing which i guess box. terminator 2 kind of took that from right so like influencing that schwarzenegger did it much smoother than <laughs> much smoother right um th- there's little jokes that are either well written or they were well improvised but sort of like the hey i'm a catholic so i don't want to hurt anybody yes. um i, I think that the miriam's <laughs> what, character what, what, what are my ears trash cans you talk to me like that <laughs> i'm yeah and that, i mean that's that's way later but like all this all of a sudden you realize like is this movie gonna be way funnier than i think um and so i i was kind of there, there were these different surprises that came um and then, so so the humor was a surprise to me, and it was it was fun. Um, and, you know, you have you have Carol Kane in this movie, and so I immediately think, is she going to be a big a big like role player in this team? And she's not at all. The, she's not funny. So I'm thinking, like, what she plays more- she plays it straight. But the moment when she's hiding under the the desk, and Sunny finds her and goes, "What's yeah. the squirrel? The squirrel always yeah. cracks me up." 
<laughs> always gets me. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and then I guess, you know, the, the, the lead teller, uh, Sylvia is like being, being kind of saucy back to the person with the gun. Like what, did you not have a plan, <laughs> but you just barged in on a whim? Um, like, like all of a sudden I'm thinking like, oh, so this, th- this, uh, sort of mixture of tension and, and comedy, though you wouldn't call the movie a comedy, but, but humor is, is really, uh, like you said, it's, it's it's almost as perfect as it can get. Um, I, I noticed when, when I was looking at the accolades for this movie, it, it, it made its way onto a list. And I, I wanted to ask this to, to you too, uh, maybe before we talk about the crowds later, but it made its way onto the, like, the 100 greatest thrills list. Number 70 on 100 greatest thrills. I cannot and, imagine finding 69 better <laughs> thrills. That is nice. absurd. But here's the thing about, about the, the word thrill here is, is I'm thinking like, the movie is incredibly tense and suspenseful. Um, I mean, Linton, but, Linton, okay, I can think of I can think of one movie that's more tense throughout than this, and it's also Sidney Lumet. It's also Pacino, and I'm talking about Sir Sir Pacino. Right. <laughs> that is a tense film. <laughs> but, but I'm I'm basically just thinking like I think it's this tension. It's what you described the the pot boiling over is kind of what we're waiting for to happen. And it happens a bunch of different ways. And there are other things that could be explosive that are not. Um, uh, our, our relationship between our FBI agent and uh, Moretti is seemingly like it's it, normally, I think it's it's easy for movies or TV shows to have it be like, oh, we're the FBI. We, we're, we have jurisdiction here. Right. The short, I mean, the shorthand, like a, I think, I think uh, Die yeah. Hard is the perfect example of Johnson yeah, and Johnson exactly. is showing up and taking, taking over from, um, from oh, Family Matters. <laughs> uh, Reginald Bell Johnson. Reginald yeah. Johnson. But I, I, I yeah. You can just call him Family Matters. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's a cop, he's a cop in that too. If, if we're being yeah. and Ghostbusters, <laughs> there we go. But but I I think yeah I, I agree with you that like the way that the way that both the teams inside the bank and outside the bank work together at odds with each other is you're you're right. It's really interesting and like they could have introduced drama in those relationships in other ways that they they didn't. They kept it really clean. Like the lines are drawn, and I think a thing this movie does incredibly well is within the first 20 minutes, you know, these two idiots are screwed. Like they're, they're, you know, like it's not hard, even, even in, in 2022, it is not hard to think through the steps of like, okay, we're in the bank. The guns are out. We've sprayed over the cameras. We've gotten a little bit of money, but not nearly enough for this to to have been worth it. And the cops are already gathering outside. There's no good outcome to this. And I think you feel that as a, as a, a at least I do, attention a as a viewer, that even having seen this movie before, I'm kind of just like, is there a way you could mastermind yourself out of this situation that doesn't end with you dead or behind bars? And there's really not. And I think that that sort of tension coupled with the inevitability is great for storytelling. Like there's that idea that like a Greek, a true Greek tragedy should be a, a bad outcome that is also the only obvious outcome that could have happened from that story. And part and the, the story is just the inevitable slide towards that bad outcome. I, exactly. And I, I think that, that that's part of what John Cazal brings to this movie, his, right? His because pathos is incredible. He, he also knows that they're not getting out 
out of this bank. Yeah, Pacino, Pacino's the optimist. Pacino's <laughs> selling him on all of these ideas. No, no, oh. we're gonna we're gonna go to Algeria. We're gonna go to Wyoming. Yeah, yeah, we're gonna yeah. we're gonna call it. We're gonna get him to get him us a plane. And all Kazale is giving him, he's just giving him this blank stare because he knows exactly how bad this situation has gotten. Even though, by and large, he's played up as the more naive of the two. Yeah. But he's not in in that sense. Not in that sense. I think the amount of danger that his character presents, because he's the one that first pulls the gun, and it's seemingly in like a professional manner, uh, the way that he does. Um, And whenever you have like a bank or a heist or an infiltration type movie, you kind of expect there to be like one professional. So like, the, the way that he, hold, he he pulls that gun out, and I think he says, like, continue talking and act like nothing's wrong. Uh, you think, oh, this guy, this guy knows what he's up to. This is the heavy. And, and as you add time to this movie, he increasingly becomes just a little mouse who stares with a gun. Um, and then we are introduced some other things about his character, right? Uh, some little quirks. Uh, quirks that maybe in another movie, a lesser movie, you'd say, is this necessary at all? But he asks Sydney, like, why do you want to start smoking now? Yeah. The body is a temple. And like, Wait, you're going to rob a bank and you're going to tell me what to put in or out of my... He's also drinking a diet soda. Something I noticed on this watch through that I hadn't really noticed before is that, like, almost as soon as the guns are drawn, Sal is never looking at the hostages. He's sometimes not even in the same room, even when Sonny's off doing something else. When he's in the same room, he's like facing away. Like he's just completely checked out almost immediately. And I was like, that's fascinating. What fascinating choices to be like the hostage taker who doesn't pay attention to the hostages. Well, I I found what, what I do in movies like this. And I think a lot of audience members would do this when they're in a situation is they kind of start looking or planning or guessing as to what's the next thing to go wrong. Um, and so I, I think to myself, like if, if they're not paying that close of attention is one of these uh, tellers going to going make a break for it. Right. Yeah. Or, or even during one of the more like lighthearted scenes, I believe Sonny is going over like, looks like some type of intricate, like gun drill. Yes. Like rifle. Yeah. Drill. Yeah. With, or like, yeah, like almost, almost like majorette, like in the, in the school band. Yeah. Like color guard, wh- whatever it is, rifle crew, whatever they call it. And in it. that moment, he, Miriam played by Marsha Jean Kurtz is twirling the gun. He well, she's yeah. got gives the her the gun to, yeah, yeah, yeah. to do the routine. <laughs> A gun we know is loaded by that point in the, in the movie. Yeah. And, and there's several times that like the guns are put down. Uh, or, or, you know, I, I need to barricade this back door. Help me, help me out here. And so I, you kind of are on the edge of your seat and you're waiting for like, is someone going to make a move? And and it's not done. It's almost as if like procedure in this movie kind of wins the day. Um, is like it, everyone does get out safely. Well, I mean, I, even though I just watched it twice, remind, does anybody aside from existing pre, pre-existing medical issues, does anybody get hurt? Um, aside from that, the except very, for, very end. Except for yeah. Sal. Except for Sal, who, hey, let's face it, he didn't get hurt either. He didn't feel nothing. There are only uh, there are only two shots fired in this movie. And one of them is a, literally a warning shot just to get the cops to back off. Correct. And, and it, it does, doesn't it? It gets everyone to back off. I think that scene is incredible the way everyone, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's in stark contrast to like our relationship with gun violence today, where like the fact that a single gunshot is enough to make everyone on the block run for it uh, and, and duck for cover. I also right. think... Like, I, 
I would love, <laughs> can you imagine Moretti on like a, a Whose Line Is It Anyway improv show? Because he's the most no and or no but performer. Like he, he never yes and Sonny once in any of the things Sonny asked for. Like, well, yeah, bring in a helicopter, land a helicopter. Well, we can't do that. It's asphalt. I, I got, you know. <laughs> no, no. But can I have a hostage? <laughs> oh, um, there's there's sort of, I feel like one elephant in the room plot wise that we haven't touched on yet. And it is when Sonny's wife. Leon is brought to the scene. It's a powerful moment, especially because we've already had the misdirect in the, in the film. When Sonny first asks for his wife to be brought to the scene, Moretti says, I think we can do, I think we can do that. And we immediately cut to his female wife and his two kids, uh, Angela who and I didn't I didn't notice until this rewatch are in the opening sequence. They are, yeah. And so you, there's a bit of a bit of a misdirect there. She's talking to the police in that moment, and mm-hmm. so then when Leon shows up, his wife that he is looking to talk to, uh, it, it, it it surprises Moretti, and I'm sure it surprised 1975 audiences. And uh, Leon is played by uh, Chris Sarandon, and I know Chris could be a, a name for either gender, but I will just go ahead and be very clear. Chris is a, a male presenting person <laughs> in this film, but that is like an important plot point in that particular character's role and arc within the, the sequence of events. I wish I could share the feeling, because I know I love that feeling when, when you introduce something to someone. Uh, but I wish I could share the feeling of uh, when you're given that sort of misdirect and then Chris Sarandon comes comes in uh, in his robe uh, that that you know he's just been brought from the the hospital and, and uh, when you really don't know what's coming next all of these little surprises are really really quite pleasant um, and so it it makes me think and I just want to ask this is a general question what's the what's the biggest surprise or the surprise you love the most about this movie because that that one for me was. The, was, oh, we're making the turn to where Sonny isn't just married with two kids, Vietnam vet down on his luck, seemingly has it going on, but uh, he doesn't choose the best friends to. Now we're we're building a deeper character with, uh, you know, his devotion to Leon. Right. And I think um, the other thing to, to point out is that you, 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 re- you know, I mentioned this in my summary, but like the reason Sonny needed to rob a bank was to yes. pay for the gender reassignment surgery for his wife, Leon. Yes. Yes. Because Leon was in a had been committed Bellevue for, for yes, for, for attempting suicide because she, she, it was experiencing life as a woman, but trapped in a man's body. And so she was institutionalized for that rather than, uh, given, uh, uh, she ended up in an institution, uh, rather than having the resources to do something about that and having right. the tools to do something right. about that. And this is also like, obviously you know, we're, we're barely in a, a society that cares about pronouns and, and treats them with respect today. But like this, you know, 1970s, like we're pre well pre preferred pronouns. And I think it's clear from the text of the film that like were Leon to be asked, what are your preferred pronouns? It would be a, a, a she, hers sort of situation. And the way Chris Sarandon plays the character, I, I'm captivated every time they are on screen. And I think to answer your question directly, Dustin, the most surprising thing to me about the movie is the way Moretti rolls with it. 
And it's just like, okay, this is what the situation is. I'm going to take this seriously. I'm not going to make fun of it. Like the other cops are sniggering. The other cops are being a little immature about this. It, it's really, it's really nice that, uh, that Lumet gives us the idea that, um, I, I think he, there's one like scene outside where like one of the cops is like, Oh, what? He's a queer. Just very blatantly to the screen. And then there's the other one sniggering, but, but the idea that, that Moretti is just ready to roll with it. I, I agree. That's, it's a good one. To me, it comes across as a little above and beyond Moretti just has a job to get done. And the idea of like, when it comes to being police, when it comes to being a a guy with a badge, are you just there doing a job or are you there because you care? I actually think is a theme that runs throughout the different cop characters in the movie. And Moretti, I think, actually has an empathy that runs a lot deeper than a lot of the other cop characters in the movie in a way that that I actually have some respect for and I think is really interesting in the way the way it's played, I think, comes across as very natural and real. I I actually uh I have a different take on Moretti. And I think that the effect I think that the effect on the audience is exactly what you want from him. Because that's him by Moretti giving the evil eye to the cop that laughs at Leon and by Moretti never questioning Leon and never make and being very empathetic to Leon in that moment. I think it's a powerful signaling tool to the audience to you know we also have to take Leon seriously, especially in 1975, right? This is the this is the movie saying everybody pay attention to what Leon's saying. This is important. Don't this is not this is not a bit, you know, and I think I think that that's extremely valuable for that. But I think that the movie goes one step further in an even, I think, in, a, in, a, in an amazing moment, because what does Moretti do? Moretti sits Leon down and listens to the whole story. So, and it's, and it's an insane story. Yes, and he's and he's so sympathetic, and he's so you know he but, he, he doesn't. But, but Linton, where was he going to get twenty five hundred dollars? Where was he going to get the money? <laughs> and he and he it needed to. Crazy. And, and he listens to the the and he listens to the bad stuff too. He listens to the the past abuse that Leon has suffered from. Oh, I think Sonny. that's, a, that's and a, he, a huge part of it. Is the fact that like it this relation it's not played for the platonic ideal of like what is, you know, uh, uh, a trans romance look like, like it's ugly, you know, totally. He listens to the whole story. He calms Leon down because when Leon first arrives, of course, it's a wild scene. Leon faints outside and they have to bring Leon into one of the stores to the barbershop, the, the, the headquarters right. for the police. But Leon initially doesn't want to talk to Sonny. And right. so that's when, that's when Moretti starts talking to Leon and starts calming him down and taking him through it and and after at the end of that story what does moretti do he threatens to uh, he threatens to arrest leon as an accomplice yeah he says you have to get on that phone i need you to do this and he does it by threatening an arrest because that Mm -hmm. is the cop that is that is when the cop aspect comes back into play i think that he is to a certain degree using empathy as a tool to get the job done and to get what he needs out of Leon. And that, that just rings so true for me in terms of how police manipulate their arrest power, manipulate people using their arrest power. It also works because like by the time Leon is ready to talk to Sonny, like Leon is functionally working for the police. Yes. He's, he's, 
asking Sonny to tell the police I'm not in on it. I'm worried about being arrested. He's not going to be arrested as an accomplice. He was locked up in Bellevue when this <laughs> happened. But the right. the he's using that threat of arrest power to get what get what he needs, which is get him on the phone so he can talk to Sonny so he can get to the next stage of this hostage negotiation. And that's after the scene where Sonny is asking for things like a jet and a helicopter and all this other stuff. And Moretti saying like, I can't necessarily authorize that. And I, I think my, one of my favorite moments of Al Pacino's performance is like, well then like, why am I talking to you? Like, let me talk to your boss. Like if you, if you like, let me speak to a manager, you know, if you, if you can't authorize it, then you're not the guy to talk to. And Moretti, the way he backtracks to preserve their nascent relationship to be like, hang on, hang on, hang on. Like I can be the guy who gets it to you. I just got to make a phone call. Like exactly. It's, 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 it's manipulative and it is, it is using that friendly face that Charles Durning is very good at presenting to, to get him to get what he wants, which is get to get Sonny out of the bank. So you said the word and I, I was waiting to bring this up, uh, which was, uh, Yes, that Durning or uh, Moretti is sort of coercing uh, Leon to work for him. And we we had mentioned Sonny is kind of the optimist here, but we do get a reveal into his past um, abusive behavior. And I picked up throughout this movie because once again, I came in without this being a perfect movie to me, without this being something that I had already put on a pedestal. It was new to me. And I seem to notice him manipulating that mm. this is Sonny manipulating everyone around him. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So much so to where you want to think like part of this is a charm. And then another part, which became more like I realized as the movie went on, was part of this is just like gaslighting and I, I need to get what I want. And it's, it's not going to be clean. It hasn't been clean at all, but somehow he's made it this far. And then when it ends up, when this movie ends up the way that it does, is that sometimes being silver-tongued only gets you so far, and then it ends, and it did here. Um, d- does that? I, I know that, like, I feel, I feel like eventually you you kind of start rooting for Sonny here, like you you're wanting this to work out. But as the movie goes on, and we see him with his head in his hands after those two calls, he gets off the phone with Leon, and he was happy and funny and flirty and cute. And then he's, he calls his other wife uh, with the two kids and can't get a word in edgewise. And, and you're, you're just thinking about the way that he tries to control situations. Then we go back outside with the control in the crowd. This, even though it doesn't present as the mastermind in control, he's always looking to, to get something here. That's something I'll take away from this movie forever is, is Sonny's kind of manipulation of everything around. I never thought of Sonny as a mastermind personally. Also, I want to, I got, I, I just learned this while clicking around on Wikipedia while we were talking about stuff. Uh, Chris Sarandon, when he filmed this role, his first feature, he'd yeah. only done like TV movies before. And he's plays. also, he's also Jack Skellington and Prince Humperdinck. He is. And <laughs> at the time of this movie, he was married to Susan Sarandon. And that's why that's her last name. Wow. I didn't know that. And he's from West Virginia, born and raised in Beckley, and went to CUA, the Catholic University of America, here in Washington, D.C. So, I can't believe Chris. we didn't lead with the West Virginia thing. Yeah, I tried to hold hold back a little bit. If, if Chad or Russell or, or Fry had been on, I probably would have come up with that. <laughs> um, but, no, I, I think I've... 
every time I've watched this movie, the thing that comes out to me is that Sonny is, he's a performer. He is putting on a show almost like as soon as things start to go downhill, the way he brandishes the white handkerchief as he's heading out to talk to the cops, the way he, you know, immediately realizes that he can get the crowd. If he starts screaming Attica, the way he's throwing money, the way he's dealing with the pizza guy saying like, you know, the cops have said, no, we paid for the pizza already. And he's like, no, no, I got this. I, I want to pay. You know? And he's like the fact that he, yeah, he it's like, very performative. He that, knows that how to work the crowd. And I feel like it, it, when you watch the conversation over the phone between Sonny and Leon, it's that sort of thing where I think, you know, any of us who have been in, in long-term relationships with a romantic partner, you have moments where you try to do a nice thing, but it's the nice thing that the partner didn't ask for. Yeah. And it ends up backfiring because you're going above and beyond for a thing that you weren't asked to do in the first place. And it, all it's doing is creating a headache. And this is like the ultimate version of that. <laughs> of yeah. like, there were other ways to get $2,500 to, to get the, the, the gender affirming surgery. Like you didn't have to rob a bank. And the fact that you did, it was clearly for, it, it, it's sort of similar to Breaking Bad, where like, if you've seen, you know, spoilers for Breaking Bad, but if you watch it all the way to the end, Walter White finally reveals, like, I said the entire, you know, five season run of this show that like, I was doing this for my family and I would do anything for my family. And in the final episode, he finally just says, yeah, I did it because I liked it. There's something about, about in this case, Walter White doing it for himself under the guise of doing it for the family. There's something that stood out while, while we were just talking, which was um, I, I think Sonny is, is, can come across as like self-interested. Obviously we, we do learn that like the part of the motivation for this job is to pay for this surgery um, but then there's something else that he's sort of confronted with, and I think as another surprise, as another fun kind of fun surprise, is that when it comes out that that he's homosexual, and then part of the crowd becomes this, uh, uh, whether they're closeted or not, probably not. But the idea that there's um, a movement behind him that like Sonny is now yeah. sort of a champion for our rights or for who we are, what we believe in. And I think he lo he loses a little bit of well no I'm I don't want to become the face of a movement I'm just trying to do this for myself here. Do you notice his difference in performance when the crowd was just people that were like responding to the Attica Attica we don't like the way cops do things either to now he's somehow the figurehead of um, you know coming out of the closet gay culture the, the people that have the banner uh, the way that they're dressed like. Did you notice that it was it was no longer the same bombastic control of the crowd when those people uh, arrived? I can't say that I do, but I also think that transition also happens kind of when we transition into nighttime. And so the, I wonder. The transition to nighttime is the when things go bad. Yeah, I think kind of shockingly for a movie of this era, like if if this movie was made in the nineties so much hay would have been made over the fact that like, Oh my God, he's gay. And like the fact that this movie glosses over it more or less. And, and you know, the extent to which he's even gay is kind of unclear because like if Leon is trans and is a trans woman, then like he's right. still in love with a woman. But you know, the, the, the way that they talk about it in the seventies is, is not quite where we're at now. So, you know, the, 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 the pronouns and language and the gender terms is, is a little, um, outdated but not done in a disrespectful way and the fact that 
Sonny just kind of rolls with it. And it's just kind of like, yeah, like who cares? Like it's like, I'm, I'm doing this. So my guy can get the surgery he needs uh, so that he's my lady instead of my guy. And the only person, the person who seems the most upset by the revelation is Sal. Yes. Well, right. I think that's important. It, reflect, it reflects on him in his mind in a way that I think no other character really care. Like nobody else he is, says. Yeah. yeah. Just tell, please have them stop saying there's two homosexuals in here. Right. And the, and the, and the FBI is like the only character, the FBI agent is the only one who takes Sal seriously in that. What I love about that moment is, uh, that, uh, Matthew Broderick, the FBI agent, he, he, Broderick, sorry, uh, James Broderick. uh, I I knew, I knew what he meant. James Broderick. It's it's Matthew Broderick's father. The guy, the guy, the guy in the robe holding the the shower being like, go away. The movie's over. (laughs) It's it's, it's Matthew Broderick's father. But is it really? Yeah. James Broderick. He, he, uh, when he looks at Sal and he says, uh, I'll, I'll let them know Sal, but I will let the media know that, that, that there's not two homosexuals in there. He's sizing Sal up. That's the moment. That's the moment that he realizes Okay, Sonny's gonna go with us when we arrest him. Like he's he, when we get the gun on him, he's just gonna go with it. Sal needs to go. Sal needs. Sal's to the guy. Who, Sal's the guy who goes down shooting. Yeah. And he he says as much to Sonny in the yeah moment. yeah, and he, he was planning like, on doing that. But it's such like a quick analysis. Like he that's why he comes in the in the room. He wants to see what's actually going on in there, and he makes that size. He sizes Sal up so quick. But I I I also I also just want to say I, I do. Really, I agree with what you're saying. How I really admire what this movie is doing in terms of respectful handling of the uh, of the relationship between Leon and uh, Sonny. And I, it's just it, it is, you know, I I, I, I I've been using uh, he him pronouns here for Leon just because that's what they use in the movie. I, I, I agree that I'm not sure if it's the right terms to use, but the, the, the way that, the way that they present this in 1975 is it. I didn't know that this was out there except, except for dog day <laughs> afternoon. I mean, like, the fact, the fact that like the way they present it in 1975 and it's not a problem today, yeah. <laughs> it's like, that's, that's it's all shocking. It's shocking. I think the performance of Chris Sarandon in the role cannot be, or, I mean, in terms of like, it's, ama- it's, am- it's, it's amazing. It's the, it's gotta be on the Mount Rushmore of your, almost your entire performance of the movie is talking into a phone, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the physicality that he brings to the role, the empathy that he brings to the character who is a real person. I mean, that's the other thing that like we've kind of glossed over is that like, Chris Randon is playing an actual trans woman named Elizabeth Debbie Eden, um, you know, who was a real person who was alive and, and had this relationship with this, this man. So like the fact that he's playing a real character and I mean, nobody is phoning it in, in this movie as, as I think, you know, your, your explanation of how they rehearsed for it, Litton was super helpful and I didn't know that. So thank you. But like, I, I just think to me, the, any moment where Chris Randon's on on screen in this movie is electric. I uh, completely, I completely agree. It's and a home run. Yeah. Elizabeth Eden actually did, as they say in the, uh, at the end, at the end credits did get, get her, uh, reassignment surgery. And mm-hmm. she did it using the money that John Wojcik, uh, got paid for the, his likeness rights for this movie. <laughs> and there is a great there. I think, um, 
one of the scenes that stood out to me more in this rewatch than had stood out to me before is the scene where Sonny is dictating his will to the bank manager. And I think it again comes back to two of the, two of the themes we've been kind of playing with is that like that scene is both incredibly touching and, and really funny. Yes. <laughs> like, cause uh, what does he say? Like, you know, being of a, uh, of sound mind and body and you know, the other stuff. And then, like, <laughs> and then, and then the way he goes through like to Leon, the, I, like I love you more than any man has loved another man in the, in the universe. And I give, you know, I give you the money you need for your surgery, but no more. Like the, he gives him the bare minimum, which I was like, well, that's funny. And then, and then he like gives some money to his wife and kids. Uh, and he says, I loved you more than I've loved any other, any other woman. woman. Yeah. And I was like, man, that's good. Like, that's, yeah. oh, that's good. It, it, it does have its points of humor, but importantly, the point of humor is not that he loves him more than any other man. And like, no, that, he's, he's, he's not, he's, it's never punching down. Yeah. And that, that is so, that line just buries you. It's so good. I mean, it's sunny. It's, sunny. it's, it's funny because Sonny is such a ridiculous person. Yeah. In that moment. It's not, it's not that it's not who he's in love with. It's not the fact that he, it's not the fact that he's capable of loving two people simultaneously, like heaven for Fend, you know, that's, that's a thing that happens. Well, we made the transition into night. And when he's talking on the phone to both of his wives, uh, is when it's night and it's inside and like the the I think more than ever presented in the movie at least so far like reality is setting in that some of the things that our characters are saying they are maybe realizing that maybe it's the last thing they'll ever say because of the danger that we're I mean we, we almost forget that at any moment anybody could get shot and killed and the the premise of a hostage situation is that any moment anybody could get shot and killed. And so well, and the um, movie keeps cutting or, or before it tra- even transitions to nighttime. It does keep cutting to the airport where they're preparing. And yeah. I think that's like the, the, the degree to which that is ominous and sort of foreboding uh, is really powerful. Yeah. And, and I think like the, the, the movie, I, I'm, it's hard to say it's, is, does it speed up or slow down or is the pace just perfect throughout? It, uh, to, it's, it almost like stretches. It's like a, that's a great I mean, way of putting I, it. I feel like to me, everything grinds to a halt in the worst way where you're like, Oh, this is going to end so badly when Sonny's mom shows up. Yeah. <laughs> like, you're just yeah. like, Oh no, <laughs> this well, is not, I, a, she is not a character who, 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 who has the plot at all and no. she is only she's we can making, run we can run you should run she's making everything worse just by showing yeah. was does it add to the movie that they put it in there did they put it in there because it actually happened is it something that the movie was made better for having that that small amount of time with yeah with because you saw you saw his mom earlier with his dad and the way his dad is com- sonny's dad in this in this instance is so completely dismissive of yeah. Sonny committing this high profile crime that's like on the news while it's still happening. And he's like, yeah, if only our kid knew that he could have just asked his sucker mom for money, you know, like, and I'm like, <laughs> man, that is, that is cold. And the, the real, the, the real dog, uh, uh, he was extreme throughout his life, extremely close with his mother and he, in, in, often enabled by his mother and <laughs> so that that part is very it's good true to, to have life. it in there yeah. so it's almost yeah. it's almost like this is the one time he tried to do something without asking yeah. for help and it ended with him in prison <laughs> for the rest of his life well let's go with this oh, last for about four, five at years least our, at least our last act here let's go with what 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 is it about sort of the the culmination of this movie 
um, that is either lasting in the most positive way or is it the is it the absolute like you know tie a ribbon on this movie we knew how it had to end uh, what is it that you'll carry on or, or 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 bring up about how the movie ends before we get into our superlatives? To me, the the moment where like I can't bear it anymore is when they leave the bank and Sonny and Sal are surrounded by all the hostages, and the hostages are literally linked elbow to elbow. Yeah, except for the one they let go that they've already decided which one's going to stay behind. But like the way that they load themselves into the airport service limo. I I almost can't take it anymore at that moment because it's just so clear that like this there's no way this ends well. Like yeah. they're trying so hard to do things in a way that they think is smart, that they think is clever, and it can't possibly work. And so it's like at that point you're just waiting for like how does this end badly? But you know, but you know that Sonny believes it will work. And like you you know that this is the best possible plan that he can come up with with what when when ninety five percent of the movie is things have already gone wrong, irreversibly wrong and wrong forever that he's still like holding on to hope like no, if we do this right, we're in sunny Algeria or wherever yeah. we're going. no i don't think I don't think this is I don't think there's ever an epilogue to this movie where Sonny's <laughs> he's on the beach in Algeria with his um with either of his wives wearing a burqa or whatever that there there was a, a moment where they commented like they make the women wear hoods over there. <laughs> Right. For me, what this movie is about is power and who has the power. The Sonny keeps telling the cops that he can't give them the hostages. There is only leverage. He needs the hostage. I can't. He keeps telling Moretti, I can't give you a hostage. What are you talking about? That's the that's all I all I got in here is hostages. That's all I got. And we've been talking about crowds. It's so funny that Sonny doesn't see that the hostages are not his leverage. <laughs> the hostages are, uh, the, the crowd is his leverage. The crowd is his power. The, the coverage. Yeah. The people, the, the, the crowd are literally tackling cops. Yes. <laughs> they're, they're, he, he's generally like the, the fact that he is, has all this public support right outside on this New York street. This is part of also what makes it such a New York movie is that all the streets are just full of, extras but also actual onlookers who for people who were just wandered up to the to the to the makeshift set on the streets of new york and I mean, that's kind of how the movie opens too is it just opens with like here's people going about their day in new york exactly that's that's the power that's what prevents this from becoming attica if if the Attica, where they where the police just stormed in and shot everybody, <laughs> including some of the ho- uh, some hostages. The staff and the yeah, exactly. and the hostages in that case were like the prison guards, right? Exactly. Right. The, so it's like the hostages were cops, and the cops still were just they like, yeah, still dude, mowed them down. To shoot everybody. Yes, they still mowed them down. The reason that's not happening at this bank is because of the crowds. Yeah. And, right. I didn't. I didn't put that together. That like things only truly go wrong when they're in the isolation of the airport terminal. Term exactly. It's, it's when he loses his power is not when he gives up the hostages. It's when he gives up the crowd. And yeah, that point. that's where he really derives his power. And it's such a intoxicating thing here. And it really is. Uh, it's such a, a beautiful display. The character, the character never admits as much, but like the way Pacino also, I think this is, I, I think Pacino is one of the great American actors. I think this is one of his top performances ever. Um, the way, I, I kind of think he starts to realize that, oh, some of the juice from this scenario is gone when they're on the tarmac is a character who's been 
getting food for everybody else, watching other characters eat, watching other characters take care of their basic needs, going to the bathroom, taking medicine, all these other things. Something that Sonny has not done at all throughout the entire movie suddenly is like, hey, um, I haven't eaten today. Are there going to be any like food on the plane and sandwiches? <laughs> and it's like, it's it's almost that admission of like human frailty, like the need to eat, I think is almost the, the moment where like he loses his control over the situation. It's gone. But I think point. it's indicative too of the, well, nobody could have thought of everything. He definitely didn't have a contingency plan for what if they get caught. It never, it almost like didn't cross his mind. Like oh. the, the, the all the planning went into, I know what I'll do. I'll I'll spray I'll spray paint the the camera so they won't know who I am, and immediately that goes wrong. So of all the things, immediately they lose a third of their crew, like you said. Um, so I I, th- I loved how it it sort of presented as, oh yeah, you know he he, he didn't ask ahead of time, but he's going to make a, a kind of a big deal of it now. Are there is there going to be food on the plane? Is there food? Yeah, there's hamburgers. Yeah, I didn't eat all day. Come on. Yeah, there's hamburgers. Don't worry about it. And and that's when uh, Sheldon or Shandon, what's the name of the FBI agent? Sheldon, Sheldon, I think, yeah. That's when Sheldon is, is as he's replying, yeah, there's hamburgers on the plane. It's it, so it, unbe- he, it's the worst lie this entire like yeah. it's the least no, believable it's the lie. Best, it's the best lie because no. it's the lie he's saying knowing that his man is about to execute the plan to take them. Yeah. That's why it's the best lie because who wins? Yeah. Procedure wins. The overwhelming manpower wins when uh when Sonny loses the crowd. Yep. And and it, it, in a way it might make you think like bummer, right? Like oh who who knows what could have happened with another, you know, it had it been successful. But no, like who wins? The the the, the fuzz with with the plan, yeah. with the hidden with the hidden revolver in the car, uh, making sure it's that agent in the car. Uh, getting uh, that guy was masterfully manipulating Sal as well. Hey, just make sure you keep All right that over. gun pointed up. It's it in the end they in in the end the police win here. And it kind of, I also know. think it's worth pointing out that the degree to which John Cazale's eyes are squinting is directly proportional to the degree to which Al Pacino's eyes are wide open. <laughs> <laughs> True. Also, also worth pointing out that the shooter, uh, the young, the young FBI agent, uh, a young Lance Henriksen, Murphy, yeah, Murphy, playing Murphy. Yeah. Well, we can talk all about our 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 sort of side actors, our MVP when we get into our superlatives. You guys ready? Yeah. All right, well, glad to hear it. It's time for our superlatives. Linton, would you give me your MVP of this movie? Yeah, I think I think it's tough. I think that for me, it came down to two choices, and I don't think it's too surprising. Uh, Pacino and Lumet, right? They're the yeah. the kind of visionaries here, and I they're also I I would call this Pacino's best role. I would call this Lumet's best movie, and I think that it's it's hard to pick between those two on a given day. <laughs> I can tell. I, on, a, <laughs> on a given day, I might change my answer, but today it's Lumet. And I think that the reason for that is this is this is a symphony, you know, and this is and he's and he's the conductor. He doesn't you know, he didn't. He's the one that brings everybody to the table and enables them to create. A, a million little masterpieces that that just sing together and it's such a championing of his style of direction that of what can come out of his style of direction and what can 
and what he can enable people to do. I think that, you know, I just called it his style of direction. And I think that one of the most interesting things about Sidney Lumet is that there aren't a lot of signature touches that he has. Um, the sweat, sure. But Aside the, from the sweat. The, yeah, the, but the... The, there aren't there aren't many. Uh, he's not he's not like a David Fincher who you you watch you know a scene of and you're like oh this is a this is a Fincher th- movie doing Fincher things, which I also love David Fincher. But Sidney Lumet is always trying something different. Is always employing different camera techniques. Is always employing different genres and styles and finding all of these different ways to to use film to to communicate the one through line that i think is there in every one of his movies is a deep commitment to empathy to human empathy and that's what we find in dog day afternoon that's what we find in every one of his movies but this is the one that i think really really sings and I don't know. I, 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 I that's a great I choice. It. That's a great choice. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and say here, we got to tighten these up. Okay. We, we can't go that long on all of them. Let me, I, I, I got this because you can't make fun of them the way I can allow me. Go ahead. So Linton, I don't know what high school you went to, but uh, my high school in the yearbook, superlatives were just like the thing you're best at. And then whichever <laughs> picture of me they wanted to use, it wasn't a paragraph. <laughs> so I'll just go ahead and say MVP Al Pacino, obviously, because uh, City Lumet's best picture is 12 Angry Men. See that retro movie roundtable episode of me talking about 12 Angry Men, the end. Uh, yeah, and I'm actually going to say I'm going to go Lumet here. Uh, I thought just putting together a movie that was equally chaotic whimsical revealing of of these characters and true to life was uh i loved your your conductor sort of reference it, yeah, yeah. it's it's, it's real, perfect it's a real so, true train really well done uh Litton, who's your best supporting this one and hidden gem probably changed for me on each watch but for this right. one it was moretti uh it was it was it was darning he ain't packing you know he he's just <laughs> he's got that charm uh, that punchy yeah. charm the, it's also like the, the he's got the best like seventies leading man body in this entire movie. Like he's, awesome he's, he's not he's not in shape at all, but he's a cop, but he's doing his best. You know, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah. For me, I'll I'll jump in just because I think uh, I'm going to go on record in terms of the retro movie roundtable uh, canon. Anytime John Cazale's in a movie, all five of them, he's going to be my best supporting actor. Sure, never not. <laughs> yeah he he just he holds that in in perpetuity um well I, i'm actually gonna second linton here it's charles durning for me hey um i i love i loved uh this character i, I realized i i had seen him uh, several other times uh, I, my first introduction to him was uh in the muppet movie from 79 i believe as doc hopper um that loving him in oh brother where art thou i only saw the sting two years ago and now this every every time you see him, it adds his pedigree gets stronger and stronger. Um, and I, I think he portrays not having complete control really well in this one. Uh, so he's my best supporting as well. Litton, who's your hidden gem this time around? Who's yeah, your yeah. Hidden gem? The, the, this time around, it was Miriam, uh, Marsha Jean Kurtz's bank teller. She, the one who's spinning the rifle with Sonny, the one who 
gets the money the out gum. and cries <laughs> sad, sadly holding up those there's those, only 1100 there's only 1100 um, is, is maria the one who gives uh sal the cross at, at the airport it is yeah that's maria that's such a great moment yeah it's yeah. so good it's very touching uh but miriam uh is actually also she, she reprised marcia jean kurtz reprised the role of miriam do you guys know in what movie i do not Mm-mm. miriam comes back in, on another, it is a hostage once again in 2006's Inside Man, Spike Lee's wow. Inside Man. That's, wow. a, that's a deep cut from Spike, and I appreciate right? it. Right? So truly, yeah. He also cast the same pizza guy from this. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. We didn't talk about the pizza guy. That guy uh, is, is very proud of himself for dropping some pizzas off. He's a star. Yeah. He takes a real, a real like Broadway bow afterwards, too. <laughs> Yeah, so what is that? Uh, 31 years later, she ends up being another hostage. Things will get better for you. Sure. <laughs> uh, who's your hidden gem? Leon. Every time every time Chris Rand is on, on screen, I, like I said in our discussion, I find him electric. I just think this movie doesn't have the cultural impact it has without Chris Rand and his performance as Leon. And I find myself sort of bouncing back and forth. I'm leaning your way now, Ryan, because uh, Chris Sarandon's performance was my hidden gem. Now, it doesn't make sense to really call it a hidden gem, but I, I just I wanted to focus on one thing uh, over the phone. That particular way you believe that Leon is used to being talked into things, talked out of things, talking back into things. It was so incredibly realistic that, that that's what I'll remember forever. So that's my my little hidden gem as well. Um, okay, this is a tough one here, uh, Linton. If you have to recast someone for this movie, who do you recast? It's a perfectly cast movie. Uh, it's, it's ridiculous to try to change any of these actors. Uh, the the one I'll the one I'll do, but I don't feel good about um, is I, w- I would I would uh, I wouldn't actually do it because he's really good. But I would uh, I'll su- I'll suggest swapping out James Broderick's FBI agent. Um, yeah. I think he's really good when he delivers that line to Sonny at the door. But I wouldn't mind to see uh, seeing uh, someone a little. A little shorter, a little little mousier. Uh, Donald Pleasance, um, who who gives um, he's done a, a, a many fine John Carpenter movies uh, as uh, from Halloween to Escape from New York, and then many more Halloween movies. Um, but he he's got Blofeld a himself. Yeah, he's got kind of a <laughs> a, a, a kind of unassuming presence that I think would work for the FBI. I don't. I don't think I agree with you, but you're. All, but you're also right that it's perfectly cast. So what, yeah, what are we? Right. We don't, we don't, I don't, it's I don't hard agree to agree with, with the recasting. <laughs> right. 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 Um, I'm gonna. Ryan, I'm gonna take thing? a page out of the the Time article, The Boys in the Bank. Let's let's see what Dustin Hoffman does with Sunny. That's outrageous. Yeah. That's actually offensive. It, I know it's it's a terrible choice. Uh, I'm mad at myself. <laughs> you should be mad. Uh, I think I think the only way the audience can punish me is by leaving a five star review for Retro Movie Roundtable on the podcast. <laughs> That'll show it's them. The only way I'll learn. That'll really show you. All right, so I had two, and I couldn't pick anybody that was like really in the movie for that long. I had two to choose from. Um, so for the uh, the the airport limo driver, um, mm. I, I was thinking like this guy is owning this role for the forty five seconds he's in the movie. But I love it. I, I was thinking about um, I was thinking about actors at the time, and I was like, if Lawrence Fishburne would have been born eight years earlier, and he was old enough to play that character, I think I'd love to see him in that role. I think you uh, you could have gotten a Richard Pryor in there. Could have got a Richard Pryor in there. You could have got Doctor J in there. Lawrence um, Lawrence Fishburne <laughs> was in 
Apocalypse Now right around this time. Yeah, but he was he was fourteen yeah. uh, at this time, and for Apocalypse Now he was eighteen, so it was still yeah. just a little too late. Uh, and then the so, other one, so you're saying you're saying Larry could have been uh, Sal, <laughs> right? actually, yes, yeah, for sure. <laughs> uh, and then I was thinking instead of uh, Gary Springer who plays uh, the the third bank robber, uh, what if it was a young Paul Reiser? He would have been twenty years old. That Interesting. Oh, yeah, I like um, that. Okay, let's move to your best shot, Linton. Okay. Uh, it's a zoom. It's a zoom on to Sal. The moment is right after the the lights go out, which is that tonal shift in the movie. You know, Sonny goes outside and sees the FBI agent for the first time, and now things are different. Now things are feel even more dangerous. And there's that moment where him and Sal run up to the podium, and they're so sweaty and it's so dark all of a sudden <laughs> and Sonny goes I'm gonna go check it out and it just zooms in on Sal and his face is slightly obscured by the the pole and he cocks the gun and it's it, it just perfectly communicates the difference the tonal difference that's going to be happening now that we're at night mm. cool choice yeah uh, how about you Brian it is uh, the I think possibly the most iconic shot in the movie, at least the one that gets gets referenced in when this this movie gets talked about in other contexts. And is when uh, Pacino playing Sonny realizes he has the crowd and starts screaming Attica. Attica, yeah, it's great. Yeah, and it's cool. I I really like. I, uh, I was like watching. I was watching this movie. I, I have a two. I have a two screen setup in my office, and I was watching this movie. Um, on my two screen setup and my wife came in to like ask me a question about something and, and saw saw that I was watching Dog Day Afternoon. She recognized the movie immediately. She has a film degree <laughs> from the University of California at Berkeley. Uh, and she just immediately started screaming Attica. <laughs> like, so it's iconic. It was I was not at that point in the movie. So <laughs> it ha- it, oh, I- it happens later in the movie, but similarly the shots of the money flow- flowing down yes, over the yes. crowds. It's great. Yeah, and the way that those shots mirror the opening shots of just like here's the city going about its day. Yeah. I thought I, I I almost went with the opening sequence of shots of just like city life, and and part of that is because Lynn and I have had our, our own misadventures around the uh, the New York City area, and New York it's really it's really a character. It's a character and, itself. And oh, I hate that. <laughs> and maybe I hate, something I hate, that hate myself for saying that. <laughs> oh yeah, you definitely jumped into that trope. Um, now the the thing I was thinking was uh, it's also the only part in the movie where we really have any music at all there's there's no score yeah it's just that opening it's just that elton john song and then and then they do a thing that i always love i don't know if everybody loves it but they do that thing to where it turns out that that was the the song that was like on the radio in the car and that's the only reason you were hearing it was because they were listening to it diegetic music so um for me the best shot for is uh in between or it might be after the 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 calls to his two wives uh, the one that was uh, playful and fun and and loving in a way to uh, to Leon, and then the one where uh, he he can't get a word in edgewise to Angie. Uh, he has his head in his hands, and I think it's all hitting him. That like, oh, this is kind of yeah. It. It, it happens right before he begins to like, hey, I want to write a letter. Will you like? And he starts dictating the letter about what he wants to do with his um, life insurance policy. And I'm just thinking like that, where his head in his hands, and he's just like exhaling like that's that's a heavy shot and I, I loved it yeah um let's 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 zoom out a little bit with best scene overall scene 
uh, Linton. Well, it's it's on it's on topic. It's that it's the the two phone calls. I I don't think I don't think it's particularly close. Um, that the that the the two phone calls to his two wives. Uh, they were it, they they shot it twice. They shot it all at once. You know, he makes both phone calls. Um, they, the, the cameras could only hold about 10 minutes of footage. So they had to have an elaborate setup to even record it, uh, all together, but they, they had, Pacino, they had Pacino run through the whole thing. He was exhausted. He was emotionally spent. And then Lumet goes, Hey, we're going to have you do it again. And he looked at him <laughs> like he, Lumet says he looked at him like he wanted to kill him, but then the camera started rolling and he went right back into it. And they, they ended up using that second take uh, for, uh, for oh, wow. what, what made it into the movie. Uh, but it's, it, it, it's such a, it's such a beautiful scene. And Chris Sarandon on his end is amazing. And just use like he, Sonny stays in place the whole time. Chris is moving around the whole time. It's, it's beautiful. And Angela is so wonderful and so over the top. And <laughs> when you, if you ever watch the documentary about the movie, she is playing it the real life Angela to a T. Oh, <laughs> so, she really yeah, she I didn't want to go it. on that caterpillar ride. What do you think I was thinking <laughs> about? <it? laughs> I it's thought you so, were going to dump my body in the river. It, it, he starts the phone, each phone call the same way. I'm dying. I'm dying. Uh, it's just, it's beautiful. Oh, you're always dying. <laughs> <laughs> it's so, oh, just, I love the like, you know, it, it, it the, the way that it juxtaposes the way that um, Leon was talking to Moretti about how like, the degree to which Sonny is a serious threat to his life and well-being. And then as soon as they're on the phone, it's just like, oh, you're always on. Like, <laughs> like the way it, yes. Leon is immediately disarming <laughs> of the threat that he has just built up in yeah. his conversation with Moretti. Um, and yeah, Dustin, I'll save you the trouble. Same answer. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, for, for, uh, I mean, I, so it obviously it touched all three of us as, as impactful. Um, mine is, uh, is, the the first time that he realizes he has like uh control of the crowd like when he really starts mm, yeah. being performative um and i think it's important that the second like the as that happens more um is it as impactful as the first i'm not sure but like the that one uh it kind of like like i i mentioned before and it is such a, a lucky position for me to be in to see movies for the first time and talk about it with people who have seen it a lot but like that that is one of those like changes in how the movie went that i was like "Ooh, wow time to settle in this is getting great it's I a tone the reason it, it works for me each time is that sunny clearly gets caught up in the heist while he's in the bank and it feels like he rediscovers the crowd every time he comes out like he kind of forgets <laughs> yeah, the yeah. crowd like he kind of real like as the crowd swells and roars and reacts to the things that he's doing with the cops i feel like there it's it's this sort of reminder to sunny the character oh yeah, there is this other entity here that I can play off of that can help me advance my cause. And so like, it's almost as if he's discovering it anew every time he does something wacky with the crowd in a way that I think, I think works personally. Yeah, it's great. It's and so much of this movie works. Uh, all right. Best wardrobe or best makeup moment. Linton. Um, I mean, I think it's probably sunny. Uh, his outfit is iconic and it kind of works for when he, when he, he when he wants to appear small, he's got the jacket on. When he wants to appear big, it's, he has it off. But it, there, there, there's a lot of great costumes here. And I just wanted to point out that Lumet actually had all of the bank staff wear their actual clothes. Uh, those are nice. those are all their clothes from home. He paid them an extra $2 each so that they uh, 
would well, that just supply their own right wardrobe. Out of the movie because it's not authentic. <laughs> <laughs> it's authentic um, to the characters they built in the movie. And I actually have the opposite answer because to me, it's John Cazale staying like fully suited up the whole time. <laughs> that's that's all. It's also great. It's but it's, but it's it's the it's the fact it's the there are two sides of the coin, right? It's John Cazale staying suited up perfectly the whole time doesn't have an impact if Al Pacino was not losing everything <laughs> about him and his appearance the entire movie. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it, it has to, you have to have, you can't have one without the other. There's also a speed to which Sal uh, thinks, talks and moves to which makes me think like, if you were just to untie your shoes, it would take you an hour. Like there's something about like, like staying in this, like, no, I got ready for this and it's, it's exactly how it should be. And I'm, I'm comfortable here. Yeah. Just in this suit right now. This is, at least I have some control over that. Um, well, what's well, your answer, me, Dustin? Yeah. It's the airport shuttle driver's coveralls. Yeah. <laughs> good, that's a blue. solid choice. That's solid a good choice. So clean. Yeah. Absolutely. Just, I love that, that one. Uh, so, and that's nice and short. Um, all right. This is the worst one. <laughs> what change one ridiculous. thing about this movie Linton. <laughs> i'm really happy with for this one uh, last last superlative i figured out the, i don't i don't think you can change a thing about this movie it's it's you perfect can't, but you have to if you're gonna make me uh i'll i'll say that uh they lumet had the actual wedding footage from uh Ooh, lizzie wow. lizzie and john uh john's wedding that and the, he decided not to include it uh, because he was worried that it it would appear too too much fun and uh, uh, would uh, lead to people not taking it ser- not taking their relationship seriously. I think you could put it mm-hmm. in nowadays and uh, you wouldn't have that problem. So that's interesting. That's a good choice. Yeah. What about you, Ryan? Set it in winter. <laughs> terrible <laughs> I just want snow falling constantly no sweat at all no sweat everyone's yeah, yeah everyone's shivering and cold and the, the, the limo to the airport is skidding out on these hard Brooklyn streets except winter <laughs> dog day afternoon in Fargo snow <laughs> s- s- uh, snow dog day afternoon mush mush to the, to the bank <laughs> cuba gooding jr in yeah. snow dog day afternoon how did they not make the sequel green light it here's all the money um winter's for, for bone me, they'll call it <laughs> <laughs> like a dog with a winter's bone um i i my, my change one thing is I, I i do i do really appreciate like like the 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 intricacies and the communication inside of the bank uh, but I'd love to see if there was just one bank employee who's slightly less cooperative, just, just, just uh, not not so much as to do something crazy like trying to run. Um, I think that might be too much. But but someone who like maybe needs more convincing, uh, does it need to be fixed by like, you know, rifle butt smack to the head? Like, no, I'm in charge. No, but something, something to, to add a little bit more conflict there, um, I think would be potentially fun. Could that be with a third? Um, could that be with a third bank robber, perhaps before that bank robber ends up leaving? Maybe? Yeah, that's a, that's a good point because, like, I don't think if if either Sonny or Sal is actually violent towards any of the hostages, it changes. Don't want that. Something we about the movie that. changes in a really fundamental way that you can't come back from. Yeah. Okay. Well, one left. What is your best quote, Linton? It changes each time. There's a million great <laughs> ones. Uh, but for this one, I'll go for today. I'll go with 
the moment that uh, Sonny is talking to the FBI agent and he oh, says... we have the same quote? We have the same quote, I think. Is it... Uh, is it um, uh, I'll kill you if I have to. No, no, no. It's, uh, uh, it's, it's related. Uh, uh, it's the guy, the guy who kills me. I hope he does it because he hates my guts. Not, yeah. not cause it's his job. Yeah. I was yeah. setting, I was setting up. That was, that was, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's when Sonny, when, when Sheldon says, you know, I'll do it if I have to do it or uh, referring to killing Sonny if he has to. And yeah. And Al Pacino says, it's your job, right? You know, the guy who kills me, I hope he does it because he hates my guts, not because it's his job. Yeah. And that was kind of what I was alluding to earlier when I said like, there's a juxtaposition between the criminals and the civilians in this movie are all like characters of desperation and getting by and the cops being people of authority. Like their only stake in this is that it's their job. And they don't really care. Like they don't care that a bank's being robbed. They don't care that this guy's married to another guy. All they care is they got a job to do. And if that job means shooting a dude in the face, simply because he took some money that wasn't his. So much so that it. they're bad at doing the things they're yeah. supposed to do. They're, they're bad at communicating. They're bad at keeping him from being tackled. They're bad at being a police escort. Well, they're, and they're, they're, if Moretti had just waited for them to walk out of the bank, as opposed to calling. <laughs> right. If, if they hadn't, if they hadn't surrounded the bank, the, the Sonny and Sal would have just walked out. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's mentioned in the movie. Yeah. Like, you yeah. Know, I didn't, you yeah no, it's, it's, you know, the guy who kills me, I hope he does it because he hates me. That's, that's, <laughs> That is a fascinating insight into that character. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I will say uh, I'm, I'm also picking a sunny quote here. It's when he's on the phone with Leon. He says, uh, I, I wanted to go to Wyoming. I had to tell him it's not a country. <laughs> you, know, you don't know where Wyoming is. See, I'm with a guy who don't know where Wyoming is. And you think you've got problems? <laughs> uh, and, and that was done to make uh, it was done to make Leon like laugh and like get back on his side a little bit. And it was like hard. It was like cute yeah it was funny their, their, chemi- and, and their chemistry is so good it's incredible there's a cute moment between them he knows sal and he, he's like oh we were with, in there with sal that, that's uh, you might better off in jail you know like it, it it's it's a cute little moment it's really nice <laughs> yeah we don't want to hurt anybody we're catholic <laughs> yeah <laughs> right yeah a lot of great lines in this one oh, the, the wyoming line that it references is also great that was a that was a casal improv he he, he, no, no one knew he was going to say that. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, hey, uh, Linton, is there anywhere anywhere that we could you know read more about your stuff or listen to you anywhere else? Uh, yeah, I, I don't uh, uh, have a podcast or anything, but I, I'm pretty active on Letterboxd. Uh, that's where I put all my little reviews. And so I'm, I'm just at Linton Fellows on Letterboxd. Well, thank you for letting us know. Um, and I think you're going to have the honor of rating this movie as if it's going to be any surprise. Yeah, come on. Five stars, uh, <laughs> half star intervals. What are you going to rate this movie? It's out of it's out of five. It's out of five. It's a five. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, surprise, surprise. Yeah. Uh, oh, Ryan, what about you? What are you going to say about this one? Well, I got I got I got a plug as well. Um, so I do a, a podcast called science sort of, uh, my background education, you know, formerly as a, a scientist. So I do a, a science show with my friends, but it's also the original conception of it. The reason there's a sort of tacked onto the end of it, it was also supposed to be a, a geek culture show. Um, that the meaning of which has evolved greatly since, since 2009 when we started the show, but it does, we touch back on it every once in a while. So there are definitely at least two episodes that Litton is on where we discuss Tenet and we discuss, uh, you were on the Man of Steel episode, weren't you? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, two movies that I think the listeners of this show would appreciate a discussion. 
of um, the other thing I want to plug. This is from Linton and I's real life is try to park in lower Manhattan. Mm. Now, the thing about parking in lower Manhattan is there are no parking spots available. True. <laughs> it's very difficult, especially when you're in a larger SUV. So here's the strategy that Linton and I uh, organically developed. It was very stressful. We might have broken a sweat in the stress of this situation. Linton. Hot day in August. Were there cameras on you? No. Well, there might have been, but uh, we've never seen the footage. So here's what happened, Dustin. This is, I swear, this is a true story. We pull up behind a delivery truck and they, they, they're double parked. They got the hazards on. Uh, the delivery driver is clearly inside delivering packages to, to a large apartment building in lower Manhattan. But the delivery truck is blocking an open parking spot, parallel parking. We could have gotten into it, right? So that uh, gold, we struck gold, right? All we got to mm-hmm. do is sit here behind this truck and wait for the driver to come back and move. And then we got the spot. Um, how long were we sitting there, Lynn? 20, 30 minutes? Roughly, yeah. We were sitting there for a long yeah. time. This, this driver had a lot of deliveries and they were not coming back to the truck to pick anything else up. They clearly took everything inside with them. These two old Italian men are sitting on a bench <laughs> next to this parking spot, watching us, these these two idiot children, sitting there waiting for the spot to become available. <laughs> and they get so annoyed because it was the the spot wasn't fully blocked. Uh, we could pull into it from the front, like with the front of the car, but the the truck was blocking it such that we couldn't back into it with a proper parallel like, yeah, parking. Parallel technique. park, right? These two old Italian men, would, and Lynn and I have done nothing to to garner their attention other than sit in this vehicle and patiently wait for a parking spot to become available, which was like the second or third time we'd had like a parking adventure in Lower Manhattan. So they finally get up off the bench and start yelling at us. Mm. Very angry. Very, very loud. But like angry in like the, the they, they were being helpful. They were being yes. nice. They were being, they were, they were good fellas about the whole thing. <laughs> and so they start screaming at us like, what are you two doing? Just sitting there, just pull forward into the spot, <laughs> get up onto the sidewalk and then back into the spot like normal. And, 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 and we did not like, Lynn and I did not protest. We did not say that's a bad idea. We were just like, oh, I didn't think of that as an option. But they immediately started being like, you know, a cop comes by and says, hey, get your car off the sidewalk. You say, I'm trying it off the sidewalk. I'm trying to back into the spot. So they, they literally <laughs> screamed us into a proper parking position and we were able to get the car parallel parked off of the sidewalk. They were, wow. and they were directing us how to do it too. Right. They were very, like, ah, crank the wheel, crank yeah, the wheel. Very yeah. angrily. like very <laughs> Right. And then like we finally got parked and we grabbed our bags out of the car and started to walk off and these two guys collapsed back into this park bench like satisfied with the day's work at 9 30 right. in the morning because <laughs> it was you know it was, this is the first thing we'd done that day just disastrous <laughs> results but we were screamed at enough by two old italian men that we were finally able to pull it off yeah yeah so that's a, my a prime example of uh, of two old italians being good fellas five stars uh, and five stars all right <laughs> there call. it is five stars um i'm gonna come in here with a 4.5 star rating. Wow, look at the time. I gotta go. I gotta go. This <laughs> movie was fantastic. Um, and I was glad to uh, have it introduced. Um, I really do think the some of the, the themes, particularly, I mean, when we were going over it, I, I don't know if race is in it as much as, as, as the others, but like for, for me, like the, uh, the way that the, the, the conversation about, um, sort of our, our sexual uh, 
how do I want to put this? Um, the, 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 the central conflict about, about our, uh, lead character being homosexual or, uh, Leon, you know, being, uh, trans. Like I thought that really held up. I think it was wonderful. Um, I did want to see the amount of people inside the bank maybe be a little less to give more of them. Like if there's any personality to stand out, um, I think it'd be cool if there were fewer of them. Um, there were some things that I'm not going to go so far as say they were silly, but the idea that there's asthma followed by diabetes, um, I'm not saying the movie needed to be shorter, but, um, maybe there was something there to have, um, you know, have that be condensed a bit. Um, I like the sort of abrupt, like, Hey, it ended with how I think we knew it was going to end. Like it doesn't, it doesn't end on a tropical paradise flying away. Um, but I, I would have liked to see a little bit more of the, uh, sort of speech between how the FBI was communicating with local law enforcement. I'm not saying I didn't like the movie. I'm just saying for me, it's not a five-star movie. Uh, 4.5 is really good for me. And, uh, I definitely want to thank you, uh, Linton for coming in and introducing this movie to me. So thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks, thanks for having me and always a pleasure to introduce dog day. Yeah. And Ryan, thank you for your story about, <laughs> about, uh, how to park in lower Manhattan and for, for how you brought everything to the table tonight. And always a pleasure to introduce people to the concept of the afternoon, since that's the part Linton left out. Of the <laughs> <laughs> and, and we need to introduce something else. That's going to be our movie for next time. You ready? I'm ready. So we've already covered L.A. Confidential and The Quick and the Dead, but it's time to go back to Russell Crowe once more. Uh, this list has three Russell Crowe movies to choose from. Option number one, from 1992, Romper Stomper. A group of skinheads becomes alarmed at the way their neighborhood is changing. Option number two, Master and Commander, Far Side of the World, from 2003. Uh, during the Napoleonic Wars, a brash British captain pushes his ship and crew to their limits in pursuit of a formidable French war vessel around South America. And finally, option three from 2012, Les Miserables, a part of our new retro, exactly 10 years old. That means we can cover it. In 19th century France, Jean Valjean, who for decades has been hunted by the ruthless policeman Javert after breaking parole, agrees to care for a factory worker's daughter. The decision then changes their lives forever. Which option are we going to do, Ryan? I got to be careful in picking this because I don't want to get beaten with a telephone. But I think I'm ready to hear... Not the world's tiniest violin, but the world's most ship-based cello. And I think the answer has to be Master Commander, Far Side of the World, 2003. Also starring a young Paul Bettany as a Charles Darwin type, just drawing pictures of different animals in a journal. Nice. We love Paul Bettany around here. All right. Well, thank you guys once again. And uh, we want to thank you, all the lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. Subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a like on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. Hey, producing and providing this podcast is fun, but not free. We invite you to support the show at our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash retromovieroundtable. Any contribution is much appreciated and will go towards making the show better for you, the listeners. As always, thanks for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Ryan? You know, there's a saying, a very old saying. When the pupil is ready, the master will appear. <laughs>